Welcome to the Empowering Midlife Wellness Podcast, where we talk about everything to do with midlife women's wellness and creating the best second half of life. I'm your host, Dr. Susan Hardwick-Smith. I'm a board-certified gynecologist, certified menopause practitioner and hormone replacement specialist, as well as an ICF-certified life and leadership coach and lots of other things. So if you want to check me out and learn about my private practice and other offerings, my website is www www.drsusan.com. That's D-R-S-U-S-A-N.com. It's my commitment to stay neutral by not accepting advertising dollars from sponsors. So all of these episodes are offered freely. And the best way that you can help this podcast is to share it with your friends, leave a positive review, and also keep in mind this is simultaneously posted in video format on YouTube, where you can find me by searching for Dr. Susan Hardwick-Smith. This week on Empowering Midlife Wellness, I have my partner, Dr. Leah Antonevich with me, and we're talking some more about hormone replacement and the risks and benefits, going back to that good old Women's Health Initiative study and looking into it a little bit more in detail because we still get so many questions about these topics. I hope after today you will be more educated than even most of your physicians. Hi, and welcome to this week's episode. I'm so excited to have my partner, Dr. Leah Antonevich, back with me. Uh, so Dr. Leah and I, we have a lot of passions in common, wouldn't you say? Uh, but just this past week, we've been chatting quite a bit about breast cancer once again. Um, you know, it's everywhere, isn't it? And recently, my sister was diagnosed with breast cancer. She's just fine. Stage one, very lucky to have been diagnosed early. One of your very best friends, also one of my friends, uh, with, a, with an early breast cancer. Again, these are young women. So I think today we just wanted to chat a little bit more about breast cancer and hormone replacement because it just continues being a topic that comes up again and again and so much misunderstanding, not to say we know everything, but what I'd like to do today, what Leah and I are going to try to do is go through what we do know, what we don't know yet, what we're kind of sure about, what there's still more research to be done and just so that we're all up to date. And that's a lot. It is a lot. You know, I thank you so much for inviting me to have this conversation today. Um, I think that we could also just kind of take a step back and start with some common sense type things. You know, um, if our body identical hormones caused cancer, well, my goodness, then we'd all have it, wouldn't we? But let's look at the age at which most people get breast cancer or even prostate cancer. They're older, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That's uh, when their estrogen might be practically zero or testosterone's at its lowest. And another kind of common sense time of life is pregnancy. Mm -hmm. You know, um, we know that pregnancy is A, protective against breast cancer, but B, we also know that women who have had breast cancers and sub subsequently got pregnant had a 70% decreased incidence of recurrence as opposed to tamoxifen, for example, which decreases recurrence in some women by 40%. So, so many things like when, um, I must say probably years into practice mm -hmm. before I ever thought of these like very common sense things like that, like as you mentioned, we don't get breast cancer when we've got tons of estrogen in our system when we're pregnant. Bathing in estrogen. We get it usually 10 to 15 or more years when we've had very low estrogen. Mm -hmm. So something about that doesn't quite make sense. 
like you mentioned, prostate cancer also happens when testosterone is very low. Previously, it was thought that testosterone fired up prostate cancer. Now seems to not be the case. So there is a lot of similarity there. So just using that common sense, there is certainly a relationship between estrogen and breast cancer. So we're not in any way saying there's not a relationship. But the misunderstanding, I think, came about with this idea that estrogen causes breast cancer. And really, the science does not support that statement at all. Now, it might cause it to grow more quickly in certain situations once it's already there. But the question is whether estrogen, particularly postmenopausal hormone replacement, causes breast cancer. And the culmination of evidence suggests that that is not true. So we need to go back to this really old study. Now, most of you have heard of, because it's now 21 and a half years old, the Women's Health Initiative Study, which has become kind of quite infamous uh, for a good reason, because uh, there's a little bit of an interesting backstory with it, right? About how it was pu published in the media prior to the article even being available and lots of other intrigues. So yeah. tell us about that. Well, you know, um, absolutely. So there are several things that kind of went on in the background, so to speak, that, um, you know, as, as we were talking the other day, they could make a movie out of this for sure. Yeah. But a, drama. Uh, a couple of kind of um, strange things were that there's a big, huge press release from uh, JAMA to the media before the data was even published, which is something that has probably never, never ever happens. happened right. ever again. Um, and there were some other things for, you know, being able to publish findings that were not statistically significant, and which means that they could have happened by chance and getting all these things out into the media without context, which uh, unfortunately has done a lot of damage. In right. fact, it has prevented a lot of women from taking hormone replacement therapy and they would have benefited from it. And even there are some doctors who postulate that tens of thousands of women may have died needlessly just from the cardio protection that they didn't get mm. from HRT. Yeah, and I uh, heard someone say this, and I like the phrase, uh, there's this lost generation of postmenopausal women who had this past 20 years or so where they may not have been given the option to take these hormones that we're going to go through the benefits that are known, but we, what, what is indisputable is that Hormone replacement helps with those early symptoms of menopause, hot flashes, night sweats, sleep problems, mood problems, sexual dysfunction. Nobody's disputing that. Okay, so we can put that in the bucket of check. Yes, things we know. And so even that was uh, not offered to women. So a little bit more about the Women's Health Initiative. It, it really is a fascinating um project. It was a massive project uh, funded by the government. So I've heard people say it was funded by drug companies. Not true. It was all paid for by the NIH. It cost a billion dollars with a B. One of the, if not the biggest, most expensive study ever done in the United mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. Also, many very intelligent people have said it was the worst thing that ever happened for women's health care. So I'm sort of in that camp. It's very sad. Uh, but there was a huge uh, arm of the study that was studying something different. They were looking at different health metrics, diet, and so on. And that's important. But the part that got most attention was this segment that was looking at hormone replacement. So they had roughly 27,000 women mm -hmm. in this particular part of the study. So that's a big study. Um, and so in this hormone replacement part, which is just a section of the WHI, how did they divide the patients up? Tell us about the patient population and, and how they were assigned to 
four different groups, right? Yeah, so this was a parallel study. Um, and again, tremendous um, undertaking, phenomenal, uh, definitely. But they had a group that was exposed only to estrogen, when I say exposed, taken orally. The estrogen was uh, conjugated equine estrogens derived from horse urine, which is not something that Susan and I uh, really uh, prescribed very much in our practice. So known as Premarin, right? Pregnant mare's urine. Mm -hmm. So that was what was given in those days. Yes, yeah. and that's what they, that's, that's why what they, they studied had. it. Yeah, it was in the uh, 90s that it was started and that was what was available. So Absolutely. So they had that group which was got the estrogen versus didn't get the estrogen, which is the placebo group or the sugar pill group. And then there was a separate uh, section where they got both progesterone and um, it's actually a synthetic progesterone, hydroxyprogesterone acetate, and the conjugated equine estrogens. And they looked at those two groups uh, together. There were some interesting things just about their selection of the groups as well. You know, yeah. um, one of the criticisms is that it's not really generalizable to uh, a lot of women because the average age was about 63. 70% of them were overweight, 36 percent or so were obese, 40 percent were smokers, many of them had diabetes, high blood pressure, had heart attacks. So that was kind of from out of the chute a uh, bit of a problem, but there were reasons that they studied that specific population. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, so the point uh, going into the Women's Health Initiative was actually quite interesting. Um, previous to the 90s when this was started, there was mass, and there still is, masses of literature suggesting that estrogen was cardioprotective, meaning it reduced the risk of heart disease. In fact, it does. And so this study uh, was what's called a randomized control trial, so thought to be the highest level of study. Previously, most of the studies on cardiovascular disease were what are called observational trials, mm -hmm. so generally not thought to be quite as powerful. So they thought, well, let's do this big study to uh, be sure, because they were pretty sure it would show that there was a reduction in heart mm -hmm. disease, so that was really the primary endpoint. And then looking at reduction in other chronic diseases. Not so much getting rid of hot flashes, because we kind of all knew that worked already, but they were really trying to look at whether uh, we could use hormone replacement for preventing chronic disease. And then they had a cutoff that they were worried about, where if breast cancer got to a certain level, that would be sort of their end point. And so that, that was what they were looking for. Now, when you do a study like this, you get a, a bucket of funding from the government. And they had enough funding for eight and a half years. Uh, they, I think they blew that out of the water, but that was what was the design in the beginning would be it would last eight and a half years. In fact, it didn't last eight and a half years. They stopped mm -hmm. it after 5.6 years. Mm -hmm. uh, so why did they stop the study early after just five and a half years? They felt that they saw an increased incidence of breast cancer, which turned out to be uh, one person in a thousand more. But that's not how it got publicized. Mm -hmm. So, Susan, if you tell me that my risk of breast cancer is increased over 20% if yeah. I take something, yes. then I'm going to say, oh my gosh. That sounds scary. Yes. yes. And so I remember the every paper, New York Times, the you know, uh, whatever the paper is in Houston at the time, Houston Herald or whatever it was, said estrogen causes breast cancer or estrogen increases the risk of breast cancer by 25%. That was the headline. And as Dr. Leah mentioned, at that point, we did not have the study to look at the data to be like, what is going on here? We just saw that. And very sensational. It wasn't until some time later that the publication came out and you could actually look through it and be like, wait a minute, this 20, 25% increase is only 
representing a difference between four in 10,000 to five in 10,000. Did I get that right? 4,500. It's 1,000. Yeah. It really only represented a difference of four in 1,000, which was the baseline risk mm -hmm. to five in 1,000. So really a trivial increase. And then as you mentioned, it did not initially meet what is considered to be statistical significance. So there's an understanding in the scientific community that if you're looking at something to try to uh, establish causality, mm -hmm. that it has to reach this particular, what we call a p-value, indicating that it's more than 95% likely that this did not occur by chance. So that's a standard. And at the time of the study being stopped, they had not reached statistical significance. And it is impossible. If I were doing a paper or study or anybody were, you can't get anything published if, it, if that, that is showing you did not find anything. So initially they didn't find anything. That is not a significant finding. It could have occurred by chance. Now later they manipulated some data and said that it did reach, it, they just squeaked it in there and called it statistically significant, but so much going on there. So if, suffice to say, if there was an increase it was minuscule and certainly not alarming as it showed up in the newspaper, right? Yeah. And then it was only limited to one particular group. Absolutely. So that's the other thing. So, so much got left out of that. So let's pretend that that increase was real. It was only in the arm taking the estrogen with the synthetic progesterone. Mm -hmm. The estrogen only arm actually had a decreased incidence of breast cancer. Yeah. Furthermore, the women that were taking hormone replacement therapy before they even started the study, if mm -hmm. they did go on to develop breast cancer, they had a decreased risk of recurrence and an increased risk of survival. Um, so they fared better. So yes. this was another interesting finding, and this had been shown in other studies before too, that if we take hormone replacement and we get breast cancer, even if we've taken it in the past, we tend to do better than those who haven't taken hormone replacement, which is also fascinating. So clearly there is a relationship between estrogen and breast mm -hmm. cancer, but in many ways it is a positive relationship, meaning it can, in this study, decrease mm -hmm. the incidence of breast cancer. And even in the group where there was a minuscule increase, if we believe it's true, and there's some argument about whether it even existed at all, nobody died. Exactly. Um, so there was no increase in death from breast cancer in the group of patients who took hormones. So exactly. not that getting breast cancer is a good thing. We don't want that at all. Uh, but nowadays, the survival rate for early stage breast cancer is more than 90%. So um, we were talking about this earlier. We really want to start thinking about what's going to kill us, right? Mm -hmm. So in a scenario where even if we take this worst case scenario and believe that our risk is increased by 0.1% per year, uh, which is what the study showed, arguably, only if you take Provera, which we wouldn't give you, but let's just, let's just go with that line of thought. That's a very minuscule increase in risk as opposed to a decrease in so many other diseases. So the trade-off uh, does not make sense. Uh, even if that risk is there, which we're going to argue that there may be a different uh, approach or I don't know if that's true or not, but it may not be true. It's certainly not uh, black and white true. But what we do know for sure is that if you don't take hormone replacement, you have a higher risk of osteoporosis, mm -hmm. cardiovascular disease for sure. 
Now, neurological decline in Alzheimer's, there's some controversy about that, but so much evidence that if we start estrogen early, that there's benefit for uh, our brain health as well, not just Alzheimer's, but memory, mm -hmm. cognitive uh, function in general. So all of those things, colon cancer, sexual function, sleep, all the things that go along with sleeping well. I mean, just a myriad of things. Insulin resistance. Right. And so, <laughs> so even if you believe that there's a 0.1% increase in breast cancer per year, which one could argue is trivial, not to say breast cancer is trivial, we have to weigh that against what all of the bad things that would happen if you stopped it. So exactly. It's definitely, um, now we're not suggesting at all that everybody should take hormones. Um, although my personal um, experience is that for most women, the risks are way lower than the benefits. Mm -hmm. um, however, just to open up that it is not a black and white true statement at all that hormone replacement causes breast cancer. In fact, in the biggest study ever done, that was shown not to be true. Exactly. So interesting. Exactly. And like you were saying, um, what are your risks of the other things that are uh, we're actually going to die of? Because the oncologists and the researchers have done such a great job of curing breast cancer and detecting it early. Mm -hmm. You know, my, women have a chance, a one in four chance of dying from heart disease as opposed to a one in 38 chance of dying from breast cancer. Lifetime risk of getting it is one in eight, and that's cumulative lifetime risk, but actually dying from it is far, far less than dying from heart disease. Yeah, so heart disease is seven times more likely to kill us as women than breast cancer. In fact, heart disease is more likely to kill us than all cancers put together and accidents. Mm. It's way, way, way mm -hmm. at the top of the list. So. What do we know about estrogen and cardiovascular disease? This is very interesting. I, really, almost without exception, every study done, and there's been so many studies that have shown that estrogen is cardioprotective. That means that it reduces our risk mm -hmm. of dying from a heart attack. Um, before the Women's Health Initiative study was published, this was something that I just knew in my bones. I mean, we had been taught it in med school. There's so many studies mm -hmm. that supported this idea. And then, one of the second headlines that uh, was released with the Women's Health Initiative shocked us all. We couldn't believe it because it suggested that estrogen increased the risk of heart attack, which made no sense based on all the previous uh, many, many, many studies and many subsequent studies. So tell us about that. Like, What was this uh, heart disease increase in the WHI and why is it not applicable to most of you? So I, I think it goes back again to the formulation and the population. You know, um, one, it was oral estrogens, which we know are thrombogenic or can create plaque or clots. Um, also, it looks like medroxyprogesterone acetate is kind of a bad player. We'll see this um, uh, again and again in a couple of different disease states. But also, if you look at women, we have uh, other studies where we look at women who started their HRT um, in the perimenopause transition and um, earlier in menopause that have that protection from estrogen that we've seen in many, many studies. And then we look and see, oh gosh, if they didn't ever have this protection, did they already have these changes occur? Was there already disease there? Mm -hmm. And so it's two very different stories when you look at it that way. 
Yeah, so the women who had a heart attack in the WHI, and there was a very small number actually, but remember these were uh, largely older women, average of 63, all the way up to 79.9, 80 basically, um, with existing heart disease. So that very small group were women who were taking estrogen by mouth, that Dr. Leah mentioned increases blood clotting, so heart disease is a result of platelet aggregation and all of these things that lead to a blockage in your vessels. So they had this underlying uh, lifestyle issues, many of them, age, and then some of them had had a prior heart attack, some of them had existing heart disease. So a truer statement would be to say that if you take estrogen by mouth and you have pre-existing heart disease, it's possible, although we don't know because this is again Premarin and Provera, but if you, if you went with the worst case scenario, you might say if you took oral estrogen and you had previous heart disease, you might have an increased risk of a second heart attack in the first year. Now, if you're not in that group, which would be everybody because we don't give oral estrogen anymore, mm -hmm. uh, and certainly there's very good ways to rule out heart disease if it's something that worries you before you start on estrogen. We recommend all of our patients have a lipid panel, even a mm -hmm. calcium heart scan for anybody. That's completely different. So if you're a young woman, say 45 to 55, mm -hmm. starting the menopausal transition, and you're healthy, and you do not have pre-existing heart disease, and you're not taking oral estrogen, that does not apply mm -hmm. to you. So, so as you were mentioning earlier, what happened with the sensationalization where there was this headline saying, estrogen causes breast cancer and heart disease, which of course, that is very inaccurate way of presenting the data. It was not at all what they found. Uh, that does not apply to you. It was generalized to apply to all women, but in fact, it applied to, if it applied at all, it was only to this very small group of quite unusual women uh, who is certainly not our main patient population. Our patients are generally early on in menopause, uh, seeking help early on. We can check to see if your heart's healthy and if you're not taking estrogen by mouth. Mm -hmm problem solved. So, so we're going back to what we know, and I think we can say this with certainty, it really is not controversial that estrogen is beneficial for heart health. Uh, that, that is just not a controversial thing anymore right. to say. Uh, I've been proven, I, I don't like to use the word proven, but I'll just say it's been pretty much proven or shown to be incredibly likely that it is cardioprotective. We see women live longer uh, because of fewer deaths from heart disease. Uh, blood vessels are healthier. Blood pressure is better. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of these factors. So if we can reduce our risk of heart disease, which we mentioned is the number one thing that's going to kill us, mm -hmm. that's a huge thing to consider. Mm -hmm. Even if you believe that your risk of breast cancer is increased by 0.1%, which arguably it isn't because we're not using those same drugs. So again, just weighing the risks and benefits, I think is really what's key. Absolutely. So heart disease, that's huge. We know it's cardioprotective. I think we can just put a pin in Check that one on because that, that yeah. is not, <laughs> you're, you're just not going to find anyone to argue with you about that one very much. Um, Another easy one. I mean, mm -hmm. osteoporosis, bone health, right. muscle mass, you know, all of that. Uh, yeah, so uh, also in the, in the Women's Health Initiative, of course, as expected, they found a benefit for bone health, mm -hmm. so it reduces the risk of osteoporosis. Why we don't worry more about that as women, I, I think we need to maybe 
I don't like worrying about things, but worry about it enough to put that a little bit higher on our list because now we're living so long. Mm -hmm. Bone mass starts to go down pretty quickly after menopause and estrogen is the most important thing to protect bone loss. What happens if we break our hip and we're over 70? I mean, not good, right? Not good. 50% of women will die within the first year after sustaining a hip fracture. And those that don't, they almost never recover and they certainly don't recover fully. Mm -hmm. uh, we've all had a grandmother or someone that we love who fell down, broke their hip and got pneumonia and or a blood clot or they were um, bedridden or they just kept... Um, uh, declining in their muscle mass and their ability to do things and they just never recovered. So that's really, really important. And uh, testosterone is also very helpful for our muscle mass and in our ability to stay strong and flexible and to actually break ourselves from that fall and to not even sustain a mm -hmm. uh, hip fracture. So um, all of those hormones work together. Yeah. So anything that we can do to improve our muscle mass so that we maintain balance, don't fall down, improve our bone health so that we don't break bones. Mm -hmm. It's not just a quality of life thing. As you mm -hmm. said, it actually causes death. There was actually an interesting uh, a correlation that I saw actually in this book that I'll sh show you in a moment. Uh, the number of people who die from hip fracture related issues. So we don't, generally don't die immediately from the hip fracture. As you mentioned, we mm -hmm. die from subsequent things that happen as a result of being immobilized. Mm -hmm. But your risk of dying from that is about the same as dying from breast cancer. So it's very important. I mean, these are both very important things. So if we could, this is indisputable, nobody's gonna argue with this. Estrogen improves bone density, reduces the risk of hip fracture. That is indisputable. Also indisputable that it improves uh, longevity from reduction in cardiovascular disease we got these two, and then we've got this possible tiny increase in breast cancer, which is arguable, and we'll get into this sort of both sides of that, because we want to stay very balanced, mm -hmm. but present the science. If there's a risk, it's tiny, and it might even be zero, or it might even be positive, <laughs> but it's certainly not black and white that it will cause you to die from breast cancer, not at all. Not at all. Um, and so just referring, I have, I've done another um, podcast where I talked a lot about this book, Estrogen Matters, which I think is a fantastic resource if you want to get some more information. Uh, perhaps this is sounding like something your doctor told you the opposite of. Um, I, what I love about this book, which was written by a couple of doctors, one of them is an oncologist, uh, Dr. Avram Blooming, who really gets into the science. So if you're somebody who wants to look up all of the literature that supports these claims, all of the various iterations of the Women's Health Initiative, because Dr. Leah will tell you there was their original publication in 2002, and then, you know, lots of spinoffs afterwards. Uh, you can find all of those here. So it's a nice little concise way to get a very balanced view of uh, pros and cons of estrogen. And so I think he presents that in a very balanced way, but I think you will find when you read it that you will agree by the end that the pros outweigh the cons for most women. Mm -hmm. And he, uh, speaking of balanced view, uh, he talks about the balancing hormone, progesterone, and what it is and what it isn't, and how, how that affects all of this as well. So mm -hmm. Because they were not using important. progesterone in that study. No. Um, now, 
people have gone back and said, well, why did they use horse urine and this horrible chemical Provera? Because in the 1990s, that's what we had. Yeah. Now, if we did it again, and unfortunately it will not be done again because it cost a billion dollars and the government's not going to do that again anytime soon, mm-hmm. um, we would use bioidentical estradiol and progesterone. And who knows what the findings would be, but very likely they would be much more favorable because, mm-hmm. as you mentioned, uh, MPA or Provera has all kinds of horrible consequences in the body and progesterone, natural progesterone, meaning the type that you've made in your body all of your life, Mm -hmm. has many, many benefits. So progesterone and breast cancer is an interesting story, isn't it? It is. You know, they did some studies back in the 70s, um, even with medroxyprogesterone and looking at um, treating and if they could decrease breast cancer and recurrence, and they showed decrease in um, nodes and nodal involvement. Um, but even subsequently, after the WHI, and there have been studies on um, micronized uh, body identical progesterone um, showing how it balances estrogen not only in the breast but in other tissues in the body and it has multiple other benefits um, including our brain health and nerve and mood stabilization sleep. and sleep and reduction sleep. in uterine cancer I mean so many things so many things so so um, these days generally patients will be taking estradiol and progesterone mm-hmm. and so we don't have a big study like the WHI for those hormones. However, common sense and lots of what are called epidemiologic studies where we kind of look back at a group and instead of setting the study up and looking forward, looking at a group, say you look at a group of women who'd taken these hormones for 10 or 15 years and see how many of them got breast cancer, how many of them got osteoporosis, Mm -hmm. heart disease, all of the things we might be looking at. So those studies do exist. Now, granted, they're not considered with such weight as a big randomized controlled trial, but also very valuable. And to date, there's been nothing, not a single thing that has shown that progesterone increases the risk of breast cancer. In fact, it might decrease it. Correct. One of the things that people get stuck on uh, is that the common type of breast cancer has estrogen and progesterone receptors. And so our mind naturally thinks, oh, well then those two hormones must have A, either caused it, which we know isn't true, or B, might make it grow quicker, which sometimes is true depending on the cancer. And this is a complex conversation for another day, but there's not just one estrogen receptor and the progesterone receptor actually doesn't cause the cancer to grow. So receptors are not as easy as just a key that you turn on. They can sometimes be a key that turns off or something that could be blocked. So that so many different ways that receptors work. Um, and just briefly, there's two main types of estrogen receptor in the breast. Yeah, right? there's there's alpha and beta, and alpha causes proliferation or growth, and um, beta does the opposite. And um, depending on, there's actually three different types of estrogens in our body, and one of which that we uh, produce in our postmenopausal years, and the one that gives us weight around our belly, and that the weight around our belly then gives us more of that estrogen, that can be metabolized into three different parts, one of which is very protective against breast cancer and other problems and the other two that aren't. So um, not only is it complicated, but it goes back to having healthy levels of estrogen and healthy metabolism of estrogen. And as you mentioned, sleep, what we put in our bodies and our activity, those are really our anti-cancer medicines right there. So even more so than, than all of these other things that we 
uh, can do to help us with our symptoms. So, yes, the most common type of breast cancer, for sure. Um, you might know uh, generally the cancer is sent to the lab and it's checked for three main types of receptor. There's an estrogen mm -hmm. receptor, which there's more than one type, progesterone, and then this other thing called HER2NU, which mm -hmm not relevant for this conversation, but it dictates a particular type of treatment. And then some cancers have none of those. Right. Um, so typically one might think, and this is true in some cancers, that estrogen will cause that cancer to grow more quickly, but it's never been shown to cause it to metastasize or lead to death. In fact, in some studies, it's been shown to cause the cancer to grow enough such that it's detected earlier. Mm -hmm. And so there's so many iterations and nuances around this um, and again, we don't want to get breast cancer, but there is really no evidence that hormone replacement causes it to develop. Some people think cancer takes 5, 10, 20 years to develop. So, uh, for example, I, I'll just mention my sister who was on hormone replacement for two years and got uh, had a mammogram and has a teeny tiny early stage breast cancer and was told by her oncologist that her hormone replacement caused it which is wrong on so many levels. First of all, it's just not compassionate to tell anyone that, even if it were true. But we don't get cancer that quickly. I mean, no. we're programmed to get cancer years before it shows up. And so if it were caused by breast cancer, it would happen many years. <laughs> if it were caused by estrogen, it would happen many years into treatment. And so there's mm -hmm. been various um, iterations of, well, you can't take it longer than five years or longer than 10 years, or you have to stop it when you're 60 or et cetera. There were attempts to make sense of this information and none of those are based on science, right? No, I've, I've often wondered um, how that came about. And uh, part of me is like, did they conflate the idea that starting 10 years after menopause with no hormone therapy or what's going on there. But you're right, there's absolutely no evidence that says that you have to stop your hormone therapy 10 years in. In fact, um, I would say depending on your uh, risks and what's going on in your life, you don't ever have to stop it. Right. We, we just, we really don't know at this point. Well, in but, fact, I'll add to that, uh, I, I would really not want to stop it. So we, we, we know, and that evidence is really showing as we, are having more women get older on hormone replacement. Mm -hmm. So we know, and the WHI showed this and many other studies that younger women, so in the first 10 years, that's great if we have an opportunity, we'll talk more about that. Starting hormones early, we wanna continue them because if we're, if we're trying to prevent osteoporosis and heart disease, and then maybe even neuro, neurodegeneration of various kinds, and so we'll talk a little bit more about how there have been studies on either side of mm -hmm. that argument, but certainly the science is really sort of moving towards uh, being pretty clear that it's protective if it started early. These are things we're gonna get later. So if you stop your hormones when you're 60, now your bones start to decline, your blood vessels start to decline, that is the worst time to stop, I would say. Like we really wanna be on hormones during those years when those diseases are at the highest risk because the benefit of estrogen goes away quite quickly. It does, it goes yeah. away. You have to be on it all the time. Precipitously, yeah. so. Yeah, and so uh, going back to this 10-year uh, estrogen window idea, um, which is frequently quoted, mm -hmm. uh, for example, Many doctors say, oh, I went through menopause at 50 and now I'm 60. Can I start hormones? And they might say, no, because you only have a 10-year window. So where did they get that from? Well, 
it's an extrapolation from the WHI, which is very interesting because many or most of those women did start on hormones more than 10 years mm -hmm. after menopause. So an interesting reason for that, they didn't want to include many women, or they actually excluded women with severe vasomotor symptoms like hot flashes and night sweats. You could have little ones, but the severe ones they took out of the group because you can imagine if you were having really severe hot flashes and you entered a study and they were giving you either estrogen or a sugar pill, first of all, you'd know which one you were taking. Yes. And in a what's called a randomized controlled trial, part of the study design is that you have to not know what you're mm -hmm. taking because yeah. that dictates your behavior in certain ways. And also, uh, you would drop out. Like if I'm taking a sugar pill and I know I'm taking a sugar pill, I'm going to drop out and go and get estrogen from my doctor. 100%. <laughs> so they, they, it's understandable why they couldn't include women. They disproportionately didn't include women early on who were having symptoms. So... Um, Many, suffice to say, many women started on hormones more than 10 years mm -hmm. after. And so when they found an increased risk in heart attack for the reasons we've discussed mm -hmm. and stroke, which similar sort of blood clotting, uh, increasing from taking estrogen by mouth, that doesn't happen when it's transdermal. Mm -hmm. That idea just kind of developed that, oh, well, you can't do that because it caused problems in this set of women. But remember, that set of women isn't generalizable to most mm -hmm. people. So if I have a patient who's 65 and she went through menopause at 50, this is another thing that drives me crazy. Do you hear this all the time? Like, oh, you're 65, you can't have menopause symptoms. Yes, yes, I hear that. <laughs> so not true. Right, so, so not true. we can have menopause symptoms forever, mm. right? The idea that menopause ends, I have patients ask me that sometimes, well, when does menopause end? And the answer is never. I mean, the estrogen deprivation state is permanent. So now your symptoms might go away. The hot flashes, night sweats, I ask, the hot flashes and night sweats last an average of seven years. Mm -hmm. So average of seven years means a lot of people are longer, not to mention vaginal dryness, sleep yeah. problems, mood changes, all of the other things. So if my 65-year-old patient wants to start a hormone replacement, now, just to play the devil's advocate, yes, let's evaluate her heart, even though we know transdermal estrogen isn't going to be a factor, but just mm -hmm. to make everyone happy, get a calcium heart scan, check your lipids, yeah. make sure, stop smoking, all of those wonderful things. And then on an individual basis, that might be very appropriate for mm -hmm. a certain person. Now, on the other hand, if you have a bunch of uh, coronary artery disease, you're a smoker, you're overweight, we want to take care of that first mm -hmm. uh, because at that point, estrogen's not the most important question. We need to get your health uh, figured out in a 911 kind of a way. So it's not that you cannot take it. Again, that's another blanket statement. I don't think it's ever, I can't think of a time where it's ever appropriate to say everybody at age 60 can never do such and such because. Everybody at 60 is completely different. Absolutely. I mean, to make a blanket statement about any any treatment we now know is, is ridiculous. We right. know that our genetics and epigenetics play a huge role. But, you know, if you're 65 and you are still not sleeping, you have suffered enough. If you right. are having symptoms that affect your quality of life, what do you think that is doing to all of your disease state risks? What do you think that's doing to your cortisol? You know, all of this plays a, is a huge factor in uh, how diseases develop. So um, you're, you're plenty tough, you've suffered enough, come see your menopause specialist. Yeah, that's so true. Because there is still this culture 
Um, I'm 56. You're a tiny bit younger. I think it's progressively worse on outpatients who are a little bit older of this uh, just dismissiveness of this whole situation. Well, it's just normal, and we'll talk about that. Natural, another my favorite. <laughs> Suck it up, in other words. Just put up with it and buck, you know, buckle up and don't complain. And so uh, certainly women in my mother's generation mm -hmm. were absolutely, that was the message. Yeah. You did not complain. Yeah. You just put up with it, and there was no help being offered. Um, but another common thing that um, certain groups will say, well, this is a natural state, and then a pause. Like, why would we want to change it? It's a natural part of life. It, uh, you know, our, our great creator made this this way. Well, you know, for tens of thousands of years, our creator made it so that we pretty much were dead by 45 right. or 50. So this is only a new phenomenon in the past, let's say 200 years where science has advanced and that we are living longer. I don't know that uh, we've evolved to catch up to our science or maybe our science hasn't caught up to us, who knows? But yeah. I mean, what is natural? You know, um, I'm 100% natural. My hair color is organic and my Botox is preservative-free. <laughs> right. That's exactly right. And I'm not wearing any makeup. I just look like this all the time. That is funny. I, uh, when some of my patients bring this up, and I, I never want to tell anyone what to do, but I do sometimes enjoy uh, sparking a, um, a lively conversation. I spent some time working in West Africa in Sierra Leone, which has the worst healthcare record for women and children in the world. So I just thought I'd just go there <laughs> just to see what it was like. Um, so that's natural, right? So I tell people who, um, I had this conversation frequently when I was delivering babies, when someone like was adamantly opposed to a C-section, like go to a country where you can't have a C-section and you'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, but in a country where there are no medications, there's no vaccinations, there's no access to healthcare, one in five children died under the age of five. The average life expectancy was 47. Most people had had malaria several times, so they had these giant bellies with their spleen being so yeah. huge. So many diseases, um, yeah. you know, parasites, worms, blindness, you name it. That's all natural. Yeah, that's how cave people live. But we hope we've evolved beyond that. Um, and, and then sometimes we have to check our stories a little bit. I, I ch certainly check my stories. I have plenty of them. Don't worry. But uh, if you're in that camp, and no judgment, but just to ask yourself a question. Many of my patients might say, well, the menopause is natural. I want to let my body go through what it will on its own. And totally your right to do that. We're not saying that anyone should uh, do anything other than what she thinks is best. But we do hope that you come to whatever decision through education, not by fear. But I've had several patients who are like, well, menopause is natural. I'm going to do that. But I'm taking an antidepressant, a sleeping pill, something for my cholesterol, um, vaginal moisturizer, and then five other things. And those are fine because those are FDA approved drugs, but estradiol, which is also FDA approved, is not natural. I mean, sometimes it just doesn't make sense because actually estradiol is completely natural. It's made from yams. Right. That's made from right. Plants. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, and it goes to the simplicity of it. Like, do you want to treat the root cause right. <laughs> or do you want to treat the symptoms of all of these things? Yeah. So that, that again, common sense when we just take a step back. But again, I think I think that our amygdalas have just been so afraid of, you know, the C word and that this yeah. thing got sensationalized, unfortunately, that it's really had a lasting um, lasting effect on people. So It's, it's really hard I, to quote another author that we like 
like to unring a bell. Like once mm-hmm. you've once you've made that statement, and in, a, in this context that we mentioned, where we didn't have any way to get the balanced view because the paper hadn't even been mm-hmm. printed for I can't remember how long it was. It was at least a couple of weeks. It was some time. So you've had this period of time where all you've been reading is it's terrible. It causes a twenty five percent increased risk in breast cancer heart disease, all, horrible, terrible. And, and at the meantime, you've had no exposure to the balanced other side. Mm-hmm. Quite hard to get that out of our minds. And uh, physicians, no judgment, very busy. Many of them, unless they were in a field that specializes in hormone replacement, never read more than that. I mean, they were busy and they just read the headlines. And so they popped that away in their brain. Oh, estrogen causes breast cancer. Let me remember not to prescribe that anymore. And then they moved on and, and they're still practicing that way. Unfortunately, I know that because we have so many of our patients who come in and have been told these things. And so sometimes you have to be your own advocate. So getting something like this to read or just listening to these type of conversations and ask a question. If your physician says, for example, uh, something like, oh, you have a family history of breast cancer, so you can't take estrogen or your brother died of a heart attack when he was 45, so you can't take estrogen. Anything that smells a bit fishy, I might just ask them, like, where did you get the data to support that statement with all due respect? Yeah. Because they will not have an answer because there isn't one unless they go, oh, I read it in the paper in 2002. And then you'll know that there's a bit more to it than that. Yeah. Um, but that still is being propagated and promoted. So it, it's quite interesting. So, um Going back to what we do know, so we're, we would never sit high, I would never sit I know Leah either, like we're, we're continuous learners. We mm-hmm. hope to continue putting out information that is the most uh, up to date. And next year, hey, we might know something totally different. But what we know now, to the best of our knowledge, using all of the science out there, and you know, the study cost a billion dollars. So shouldn't we honor the results? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I just think it's so interesting that this uh, most expensive study ever done in the United States had some very clear findings and we're not relying on them. In fact, we're relying on an opposite finding. So to review, the WHI found no increased risk in breast cancer in the group of women who took estrogen. In fact, it was decreased. Decreased. A minimal, possibly not even there at all, increase in breast cancer in the group that took Provera, which we don't use anymore. And there's a lot of arguments about how that might not even be a real increase. Again, because the placebo arm was falsely low too. So yeah. there would have been a difference if I did nothing. Right. So yeah. Anyway. So you can yeah. So you can <laughs> you can. Statistics are so interesting. I I remember one of my teachers saying, "There's lies, damn lies, and statistics." Now we have to have statistics, but we also can recognize that they can be manipulated in different ways. And um, not to say that there was any uh, malice. In, in the mind, these are were, were well-meaning people, but they also really wanted to find something because we all want to do a good job. And gosh darn it, if the government gave me a billion dollars, I would really want to come up with something big. And yeah. they just didn't. They didn't have anything big, and so everything was kind of blown out of proportion. Yeah. Uh, and then they spent years digging into that data, trying to find something. Like, please let us find something after all this money. Couldn't find anything, but what they did find was no increase or such a minuscule increase that it's arguably trivial in both arms of the hormone replacement group. But 
massive benefit for the bone, mm -hmm. colon cancer, which was really not published. That's a terrible disease that affects one in 25 women mm -hmm. and has a much higher rate of killing us than breast cancer. Right. As well as, uh, now the cardiovascular benefit wasn't shown in the larger group, but when they looked back and looked at the younger women, they did see cardiovascular benefits. So lots of things that came out of these spin-off studies. So yeah, and I mean, more than one thing, not just in the cardiovascular um, data, but because they had stopped the early, stopped the study early when they did start looking at some things, things that they thought um, were negatively impacted by HRT weren't, and things that, um, you know, as we studied longer, like even the Alzheimer's and the cardiovascular um, disease effects, um, turned out not to be what they advertised at first, which, you know, kind of could bring us to Alzheimer's as well. Right. Um, you know, initially they uh, showed in that study that there was an increased risk of dementia. Um, but we've had subsequent studies, of course, also looking just at estrogen, which have shown anywhere from a 20 to 50% reduction in Alzheimer's disease. We know, as we stated earlier, that estrogen increases longevity by three years and all cause mortality. So that means dying of, of anything. Um, and uh, so that was kind of a interesting finding yeah. as well down the road. Yes. And remember, this study only ran for five and a half years and then it was stopped. Now, some of those patients went on to continue taking hormone replacement on their own after the study and some didn't. But that group was subsequently followed, I think now for 18 or more years. And so, as Dr. Leah said, a lot of the things they originally found kind of disappeared over time. Mm -hmm. So the Alzheimer's thing is interesting because again, older group of patients taking estrogen by mouth, it's now thought that the uh, root cause, and I'm not gonna say that I know this because I don't think anybody does, mm -hmm. But certainly one of the root causes of Alzheimer's is uh, vascular lack of perfusion, mm -hmm. and that leads to the buildups of these tau tangles and other things that we know are diagnostic of Alzheimer's. But yes, if you give oral estrogen to an overweight smoker, that's not going to be good for her blood vessels anywhere, uh, including in her brain. So very different, again, than a young woman taking estrogen and, and countless studies in labs where we've looked at pictures of brains from not just rats and mice, but also humans exposed to estrogen. I mean, changes the shape and size of your brain. Absolutely. Um, so that's quite interesting. And uh, yes, there are studies that show the opposite. Um, with most things, there it's very rare that you'll find 100% agreement on anything uh, with studies because study design is such that We've joked before that you could make a study to say the moon is made of cheese, and you could. Okay. Uh, you can make up all kinds of crazy associations that can appear to be real, and they're not. Um, so there'll always be discrepancies, but when you're looking at mountains of evidence from different fields, different countries, different environments, and they're starting to point in a certain direction, that's very important. Mm -hmm. And certainly with uh, neurological uh, and cognitive benefit from estrogen, that's certainly something that I'm taking mine for, along with all of the other reasons. So I think this uh, idea, which is still quite prevalent in the community, because the authors of the WHI still state this, actually, I was listening to, uh, we both were listening to an interview with one of the primary authors just the other day. Party line is still, unfortunately, uh, yes, take estrogen for the shortest time you can and the smallest mm -hmm. amount you can, only for those early symptoms, hot flashes, night sweats, moods, sleep, but not for prevention of chronic disease. And I'm just going to sit here and say that is 
doesn't make sense. Uh, now in the WHI, that made sense because they didn't find benefit in those things because they were looking at a different group of women, different drug, all the things we're mentioning. And too short of a time. Too, and like <laughs> too short years. of a time. Right. I mean, you're not going to find those things in five years, right? Yeah. So absolutely, we prescribe hormone replacement for prevention of chronic disease, including most importantly, osteoporosis and heart disease. Mm -hmm. And then very likely neurodegeneration mm -hmm. as well. So not only for those first few years, but ongoing. And so you will see, um, you know, people that are very heavily entrenched in academia will still stick with that, take the smallest amount for the shortest amount of time. But there's zero science supporting that statement, none whatsoever. That's, that's another offshoot from the WHI. Uh, so we kind of have to I think it would behoove us to not use that study as our primary source of wisdom regarding hormones anymore because <laughs> it's just old. Yeah. I mean, wrong drug, wrong population, all the things. Wrong drugs, wrong formulations, wrong populations. I mean, wrong conclusions, wrong length of time. I mean, don't get me wrong again. Like, whoa, what an undertaking. I mean, yeah. when we've done yeah, research, study. we know how incredibly hard yeah. that is. But the conclusions that um, were drawn, many of which have been um, recounted, so to speak, or we've added on to. And um, I, again, it was just the sensationalism in the media mm -hmm. that really took things in the wrong direction. And those were uh, not things that ever really should have been stated in the way that they were stated without context. Yeah, really so many things happened there that would never have happened in any other setting, except that it was such a massive, expensive study, I think mm -hmm. that... I wasn't there. My, my story, my imagination is that they just had this super heightened need to find something because it was yeah. such a big study. Well, and there just wasn't much in it. Yeah, it's also there's some some rumors founded or unfounded that one of the cardiologists had a pretty big bias about wanting to not yeah. find cardioprotective effects. Yeah. And well, actually, like one, that, yeah, so. one of the primary authors had previously published an article that was very much in opposition to hormone replacement. That was his particular frame of mind. So it, all of us have opinions, uh, researchers or otherwise, mm -hmm. but um, as scientists, like one of the really big rules is to have a hypothesis or generate an idea and then we're testing it, but we have to be willing for it to turn out wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, if we're so determined that it's going to turn out the way we want, we can create it such that it will. And there was some of that mm -hmm. stuff that went on where certain data were ignored and others were inflated to make it look a certain way. And that's just human nature. Um, but I think as consumers, uh, one really important lesson is regarding this uh, discussion of absolute risk versus relative risk. So if you ever read anywhere in the news, and you will, because it, it always makes it look sensational, that there's a such and such percent increase in whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So if I read, you know, you could say there's a 200% increase in bunions when you eat mm -hmm. cauliflower. I made that up. I don't know if that's true. I think it probably isn't. But that could mean an increase from one in a million to two in a million. Mm -hmm. It's completely trivial. Exactly. In fact, that's there's no such association. But I, if I said there's a 200% increase versus a one in a million increase, that sounds totally different. So when you see things presented that way, it's always for the purpose of making it look more important than it really is. And that would be a red flag for me to dig a little bit into the data because you know journalists are not going to sell magazines and newspapers 
with stuff that doesn't sound that interesting. No, they're going to sell mm -hmm. magazines if the drug's going to kill you or give you, you know, cancer right. or two heads or whatever it is. But, yeah. you know, the, the relative and absolute risk point goes back to my dear friend who's uh, two years on tamoxifen now. And um, let's, let's just say that, you know, let's just say that her risk of recurrence is 5%. Let's just pretend. I don't know. But um, and let's say tamoxifen is going to decrease that by 40%. Um, that sounds a lot, right? right? That sounds great, right? But actually what that means is that's going to decrease her risk to 3% chance of recurrence. And yet she's having other problems and has other family history. And those problems are going to um, potentially go up or the suffering is going to increase. And so it's, it's very different when you look at it in, uh, you know, an absolute number and uh, yeah. just does it makes a huge difference right yeah and uh my sister's actually going through something similar and i think um it's very intimidating possibly to if you're a breast cancer patient or if you know one which i think we all do to uh disagree with what your oncologist might recommend however i think it's your right to question uh, because an oncologist is a fantastic resource. We, oh my goodness, thank goodness, they will mm -hmm. make your cancer go away. Yes. And, and then let's just say you're cured, you're done, your cancer's removed and treated. Uh, somebody who's in breast cancer world, mm -hmm. as would I be, if I'm in breast cancer world, all I'm caring about is getting rid of cancer. I don't much care about the collateral damage because it's just not my primary focus. And that doesn't mean there's anything wrong. That just means we employ them for their incredible skills. Mm -hmm. And then you can move on once you're treated. Now, we are talking about very early stage cancer in this con context because, of course, a later stage cancer is going to be more complicated. Yeah. But once you're cured and treated... Now we want to look at the, your whole picture again. How are you feeling? Your sleep, your mood, your sex life, really important. Joint pain, all the things, not to mention cardiovascular protection, bone health, all those other things. So that's a very good example. If you decreased your risk of recurrence from 5% to 3%, that's even arguable if that's true, but let's just say it is. Um, and you had all these other problems, are you going to live longer and have a better health span? Probably no, right? Because you're not going to die from breast cancer. You're going to die from all these other things and you'll be miserable, possibly. Not everybody is, but many women are on anti-estrogen medications. Yeah. So I think it's, it's really wise to be your own advocate and ask a lot of questions like, is this a really good idea for me, what, whatever that is? Uh, whether it's hormone replacement, whether it's um, treatment after breast cancer. Yeah. And what what are my other options as well? You know, mm. I think that, um, well, I won't say most doctors, but, you know, there's statements out there by the American College of OB-GYN and the Menopause Society about low-risk women with low-risk uh, breast cancer recurrence and using vaginal estrogen and other things. And I, I know for a fact that there's still a lot of um, oncologists telling their patients, I mean, unequivocally, unequivocally, no, which um, I, I don't, I don't believe that that's a true um, as far as breast cancer recurrence and B, I don't think that's a really good way to, you know, talk to your patients and certainly 
shaming them like they yeah. did your sister and all Fair that right. is not but um there's a lot of options out there not only are there creams that contain estrogen there's creams that do not contain estrogen and dhda there's testosterone pellets there's testosterone pellets with aromatase inhibitors that prevent testosterone from getting converted into a little bit of estrogen so I, there's and there's so many benefits to just doing that uh, rebecca glaser is a doctor that's done amazing work on that so mm. just know that there's a lot of other things if the non-hormonal treatments have failed. Yeah, so this uh, vaginal and sexual health is, is huge. I mean, we if you're unfortunate enough to get breast cancer and decide to be treated with an anti-estrogen or not to be on estrogen at all for whatever reason, uh, it doesn't mean it's the end of your intimate life. I mean, absolutely not. I mean, there's so many things we can do to help with that. So uh, there's Never an N-O, uh, as Leah suggested. Like we, we really don't, I don't think doctors should, in my opinion, tell you, you can't do this, you must do that. I never tell anyone, you cannot do this or you must do that. Mm -hmm. It's a collaborative decision based on your education and your desires. I have a lot of breast cancer patients who take estrogen. So we'll talk about that for a moment, uh, taking estrogen after you've been treated for mm -hmm. breast cancer, which... If you asked 100 doctors, 99 and a half of them would say, absolutely not. Because we've just been entrenched in this idea that estrogen caused breast cancer, and so therefore it will increase your risk of recurrence if you take it. And now there are studies that suggest that's true, but there are also a large number of studies that suggest the opposite. So that is not a black and white known fact. Uh, it's a very gray area that's very dependent on the patient. So if I have a patient who's been completely treated, Let's just take it to the extreme. She's had a double mastectomy, does not even have any breast tissue. Her risk of us, her risk of breast cancer recurrence really should be hovering right around zero because mm -hmm. she doesn't have any breast tissue. Right. So in that case, we have to sort of think, I don't have any breast tissue. Like I can't get breast cancer recurrence or if the, the chance is so minuscule that it's trivial, a trivial risk, uh, for example, or even someone who's had the cancer removed, it's been treated appropriately. Now, could you get a cancer in the other breast? Sure, but unlikely, and it would be treated and you would be fine. In the meantime, you could feel well. So I'm not suggesting everyone should do that, but I will tell you I have way more than I could count on two hands patients with breast cancer who have chosen to take estrogen because they felt terrible without it. Yeah. And they looked at the data, they looked at the research, um, there's certainly data on each side of that, by the way, but even if you played the devil's advocate and suggested that there was a very small increased risk in recurrence if you took estrogen, which may not even be true, <laughs> balancing against the other beneficial factors and again, knowing it's not going to kill you. Yeah, You'll catch it early, now we don't want that, um, but you could be treated again and you'll feel good in the meantime. I often say, we're all waiting to get breast cancer. Every time I go get a mammogram, I'm like, it might be my day. Do you want to feel good while you're waiting or feel terrible while you're waiting? That's the two choices. Exactly. But <laughs> because that's it so important. It doesn't change the risk whether you take hormones Absolutely. or not. You're and going if, to get it or not. If you're um, miserable and you're not sleeping um, yeah. and, and you're not able to have intimacy and all the yeah. other really important quality of life things, then your risks of getting all kinds of cancers and that's all right. kinds of diseases is increased. So again, just use that common sense and go back to 
eating um, foods that have anti-cancer properties like cruciferous vegetables and blueberries and moving our bodies and on the things that are going to have way more of effect than some little bit of estrogen cream could ever possibly theoretically right. have. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so it's, it's such a great example where we've got this tiny possible hypothetical, not even sure risk versus this incredible benefit. It just, for most women, not all, for most women, the risk benefit is like this. Risk is down here, benefits up here. Not for everyone, but in most cases that's true. And to your point, I could, as a patient going through menopause, when I couldn't sleep, now my cortisol's high, now I'm grumpy, mm -hmm. I don't wanna to go to the gym, I have sugar cravings, so I'm eating sugar, my insulin's going up. That is a perfect situation to get all kinds of chronic illnesses, including cancer. Mm -hmm. So that study's never been done because I don't think any woman would want to put herself in that group for a long time. But yeah. for sure, um, that type of lifestyle is conducive to all kinds of health problems, including Alzheimer's. We, we, the thought process about sleep in relation to Alzheimer's is that we're not giving our brain time to recover. So, I mean, there's just so many ways that that went wonky, mm -hmm. taking women off estrogen for 20 years. Yep. And, and unfortunately, it's still continuing now. It's been a huge disservice to a large number of women who could have benefited. And as you mentioned early on, um, has led to so many deaths. <laughs> and so um, I was looking at the WHI's official website mm -hmm. the other day. Uh, again, massive study and with all due respect they were quoting some fabulous statistic about how many cases of breast cancer have been reduced as a as a i know i have to sort of swallow my <laughs> my uh, i'm going to stay calm how many cases of breast cancer have been prevented as a result of women being taken off hormones for 20 years and again they were using this one per thousand per year but no increased risk of death. And then they didn't count all the women who died from heart disease and osteoporosis-related injuries and divorce because they can't have sex and depression and mm. suicide and anxiety and uh, diabetes and everything Yeah, and, I mean, we didn't even cover depression with the, the right. preponderance of, you know, studies and evidence for the it, better in mood that estrogen, being on right. estrogen is and all of that is, is so, I mean, like really not disputable too so mm. it's uh going back to individualized medicine it really really like susan said we, we want you to make a choice based on fact not a fear and um you have the right to change your mind you have mm. the right to change your mind as does everybody as more information is presented to them yeah that's so true so there was only one thing that I forgot to mention earlier that I thought was so interesting. In the beginning, I review this about this question of does estrogen cause breast cancer? And we had mentioned, well, wait a minute, we don't get it when we're taking birth control pills or very rarely, or when we're pregnant, extremely mm -hmm. rarely. The average age to get breast cancer is in our mid-60s when most women have had no estrogen for mm -hmm. 10 to 15 years or more. So none of that really makes sense. Another thing that doesn't that adds to that not making sense pool is that not too long ago uh, when young women had breast cancer, uh, they took out the ovaries. Um, and that showed to not do anything except a bunch of harm, except to a very small group of women who had a very high, a different genetic predisposition, who, uh, 
we're talking about average women here. Yeah. So taking out the ovaries, which is, you know, it's surgical castration. Can you imagine doing that to a man? Uh, taking out the ovaries in a young woman did not reduce the risk of recurrence of breast cancer or improve their state at all. In fact, it made them very sick. Um, and then uh, within my career, I think you might know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, uh, the standard of care, even for postmenopausal women having a hysterectomy, mm -hmm. used to be, well, if we're taking out your uterus, let's just take out your ovaries as well. Um, and then some time ago, and mm -hmm. I'll get it, get it wrong, maybe it was 10, 15 years ago, the, uh, there was a sea change there because we found that taking out the ovaries, even in postmenopausal women, because the ovaries make a teeny bit of estrogen mm -hmm. and testosterone, mm -hmm. uh, increased the risk of heart disease and osteoporosis. Yeah. So if that tiny, tiny little bit of estrogen that postmenopausal women were making from their ovaries, taking them out, increased the risk of cardiovascular disease and osteoporosis. I mean, that that's a huge kind of like, hmm, moment because we don't do that anymore if you have a hysterectomy and you're over 50 we might take out your fallopian tubes because that reduces right. the risk of ovarian cancer but the standard is to leave the ovaries in place because more harm is done by taking them out than leaving them in yeah. even though ovarian cancer is a terrible disease it only happens to one in 200 women and as we mentioned these other diseases are extremely common so i think that's such an interesting sort of way to sum up the whole pile of things that don't make sense about estrogen mm -hmm. and whether hormone replacement is beneficial or not. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that for most women, it is. So it's been so great to have you here again. Well, thank you, Susan. Um I, I so fun to have lively conversations and I'm not just talking to myself. <laughs> uh, and do take a look at this book. I, you know, I really think it's a great resource. Um, again, written uh, by an oncologist also co-authored by a fantastic psychologist who looked at the statistics in a very in-depth way and it is very balanced um, certainly the end point is I think you'll find that the argument in favor of estrogen is stronger than that against but they present it all and mm -hmm. so you can decide for yourself um, and I think if you have this data if you're wanting to educate your physician or go in uh, to your visit with a little bit more information it's a great way to start a conversation and give it to your friends to read too, um, because it's you know, it's just science. Uh, it's not an opinion. Uh, so I hope you learned something today. If you like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe, share it with your friends, and if you'd like to meet with Dr. Leah, she's in our office in the museum district, and you also see patients virtually. I do. If you live in Texas, you can see me. Yeah. So uh, if any of this resonates with you, we would love to talk to you about it in context of your particular health and family history, because there's no blanket statement that covers you. You're special, unique, and more than likely, hormone replacement is more beneficial than risky as it is for most women, so. And we are happy to collaborate with any of your other doctors as well. Yeah, yeah, you're a whole person. We want everybody to be on the same page. So I can't wait to see you next week. Mm -hmm.